0: From CPR News and KRCC, this is Colorado Matters. The new year was about to bring new hope when unrelenting winds hit Boulder County and a wildfire broke out. It's been a year since the Marshall Fire, the most destructive in state history. We'll get the latest on the investigation into its cause. I'll check back in with a man whose brand new restaurant burned, even as he struggled with pandemic labor and supply shortages. I mean, it must have just felt like getting punched in the face over and over again.
1: Yeah, it definitely was. And, and the funny thing
2: is it has not
0: ended. Then a tool to help you gauge your vulnerability to climate disaster.
2: So it helps you make the decisions about, hey, do I have to do something to protect my investment, protect my family, protect my home, protect my business?
0: And Boulder County's representative in Congress.
3: The underinsurance challenge that is very acute in Colorado is a matter of national concern.
2: It's time to part ways with your beloved
3: car. But you want it to go somewhere, it'll truly be appreciated. So donate it to CPR. Instead of sitting and gathering dust, your tax-deductible car donation will fuel Colorado Public Radio. You love your old car. Now let it bring you the programs you love. It's so easy and convenient to donate your car at
2: cpr.org support.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'm in Louisville near Boulder on an empty plot that a year ago was a restaurant, The Rotary. It had been open for just two weeks before burning in the Marshall Fire, along with more than a thousand homes and a handful of other businesses. Owner Scott Boyd was in the restaurant that morning, preparing for what he hoped would be a busy day. When the flames crept up, he and his employees fled, leaving food in the ovens, money in the cash drawer. A year later, I've met Scott here to talk about how that fire changed his life and his business outlook. And thanks for being with us, Scott. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me. Last time we spoke, soon after, one of the most devastating fires in Colorado history, you were pretty uncertain about the future. I guess, first off, describe what the site of your former restaurant looks like now.
1: It's just like a big cement plot. The foundation is still standing. Around the circumference is a temporary construction fence and weeds have already kind of grown up where they had burned down. And yeah, it just looks like a big chunk of cement. And if you didn't know, maybe you'd think like nothing was here and they were just building it for the first time.
0: Yeah, those weeds, those telltale weeds Mm -hmm. that come in after a fire. The strange thing is we are surrounded by buildings that made it. There's an escape room business mm-hmm, there, mm-hmm. a dispensary, a pho place. You know, fires notoriously burn in a mosaic, like a checkerboard yeah. pattern. But I can't help but think, why did this burn down and nothing else immediately around it yeah. did not.
1: And I don't I don't know. I do know that we're looking at the escape room right now. That tree right there was on fire why that didn't catch into the into the building. The I roof that's know. right next door, yeah, the shingles the, right next door. This pho place caught a little bit on fire. I think they were closed for a minute, but nothing bad. So I don't know. I do know everything that I've kind of read on this fire that they're like, this was the kind of reset all the rules about fires huh. that, you know, they said even said like a lot of these houses burned from the inside out. Like embers went in through the HVAC systems the house caught on fire inside and then burned out. So that the fact that that wind was so strong that it was like all bets
0: were off. I remember that day. I happened to be in Golden and it was such a surreal day. Mm -hmm. And then the fire ignited. Is it painful to stand here with me? Not really. And I think some of it is the
1: fact that it doesn't look the same anymore before when we'd come. It was the shell of the building and you'd see our sign was still there and you could see the work that you put into it still there. Now it's almost nothing is here that was a part of what we had. I guess it feels a little sterile.
0: It does feel sterile. Mm -hmm. And as you said, if you didn't know what happened here, you might think this is construction for the first time. Right. What were you able to salvage from the fire? We actually, we lucked out
1: quite a bit. So if you saw the building or if people saw the photos, it looked pretty destroyed and it was, I mean, clearly they took the whole thing down, but once you walked inside, you would see the roof was burned and there'd be little places where it fully burned through and you could see the the sky coming through and the sun coming through and all the walls were burned. But once you got in, the the fire sprinklers really worked. So it was just a bunch of stuff covered in water, anything that was concave of nature collected water and then it froze and if it was anything that could not expand it was broken so we had all kinds of glasses and mugs that were right side up that just shattered because they filled with sprinkler water and then it froze because there was no heat and the windows were blown
0: out and it was winter. What a photographic emblazoning that is on your brain I yeah. could just I could just tell yeah. but but what did make it so anything yeah,
1: a lot of stuff basically anything that wasn't couldn't be destroyed by freezing water so insurance looked at it and they're like we're not even gonna mess around we're gonna give you your entire you know amount that you're insured for and they're like yeah anything you can salvage is is obviously yours so part of the difficulty was you can't test it. Right? The water doesn't work, the power doesn't work. And restaurant equipment is a lot of it is not just plug it into a normal outlet. A lot of it is bigger voltages and water coming in. So, for a long time, we were like, how do we even find out if this stuff <sighs> works? We were trying to find empty restaurants. Like, hey, can we bring our stuff in here and see if it works? We tried to find some warehouses, but we couldn't find anything. So, we just said, look, we're going to assume that it all works. And we took it to storage. And then slowly we upgraded some of the stuff that we have at the location in Denver. And almost, I mean, so far all of it's worked. Wow. There's a little tweaking we had to do with some stuff where pipes kind of froze that had water in them and they had to replace that. But... Yeah, it was really kind of surprising.
0: So you both got the insurance money and working equipment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah. Not, I'm not going to stand here and call you fortunate in any way, but I guess that's the best of worst possible outcomes.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Because, you know, a lot of people that lost their homes had to rebuild their homes and they weren't insured for the amount of what it would cost to rebuild it now. We didn't have to rebuild anything. You know, we were insured for all the money that we put into it, plus the equipment. And yeah, I mean, as fortunate as you can be going through something as that. Yeah, yeah, we were for sure.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. And the Marshall Fire was a year ago tearing through Boulder County. We're checking back in with Scott Boyd, co-owner of the Rotary Restaurant, which had only just opened when the Marshall Fire ignited. And destroyed the place. Right after the fire, you said you hope to rebuild Mm -hmm. somewhere. Yeah. Even though you have a restaurant kind of in storage, Uh as you've described all of the elements, you don't yet have a new location to replace this Louisville one. What difficulties have stalled that? It was a
1: process to get out of here. And, and for a minute, like, I'm glad now because we look back and we were able to salvage some stuff. But for a minute, it was like, man, I just kind of wish everything was destroyed so we could just move on. Right? Oh. So so we had to go in. There's You're in still... like a
0: liminal place, this middle place right, between... Right destruction and not
1: yeah because it was a pain in the ass to go in there in the winter right there's no light everything's boarded up at this point so all where the windows are there's now plywood so you pull this door open that barely works you go inside and it's pitch black
0: you're spelunking
1: yeah exactly we're literally wearing like the little lamps yeah headlamps walking around with gloves trying to get out frozen, like frozen food that was in things. And yeah, it was a pain, like moving huge equipment in the middle of
0: winter in the dark. So, and so where, where are you now? Do you want to open another location?
1: Yes, because I think, I mean, partly just maybe stubbornness that we've, <laughs> we've <laughs> been through so much. We've opened two restaurants in the middle of covid You know, and it's just like, I think we figured out what, what we are and what works for us. And it would be kind of feel like a disaster to be like, all right, we just went through all this hell and now let's not keep going. So yes, we do. And I think we've realized that opening a restaurant if you're part of a restaurant group or you have investors that's one thing if you're like a handful of people that are doing a majority of the work it's like six months of nights and weekends to open a restaurant Mm. while you're running a restaurant
0: which is true for you because you have the Denver location
1: and where we've where we've landed we absolutely want to keep going we want to open more and we've we started in a food hall and we were like, oh, we want to get out. We want to do our own thing. And what we've kind of realized is there's, there's a lot of benefits of being in a food hall environment. You don't have to do a big build out. You're not even necessarily responsible for bringing in as many people a lot, a lot
0: less people. overhead yeah absolutely i mean food hall is like the fancy way of saying food courts right i yeah, mean they're yeah. they're elevated of course and so that's where you're thinking is a yeah food court. and
1: they have now kind of these hybrids they're like not totally hey you're just in a building and and there's this food hall there maybe you're outside and there's several of them but they're all combined in some way, and they all work together. So we're, we're actually speaking to one place right now. It's a little too soon to talk about it, but mm. it feels like a good in-between between traditional food hall and standalone restaurant.
0: You contended with layers of disaster, mm-hmm. fire, plague. Right. Then the obstacles, I imagine, of labor, employment, mm-hmm. and all of the issues around supply chain. Yeah. I mean, it must have just felt like getting punched in the face over and over again.
1: Yeah, it, it, it definitely was. And, and the funny thing is it has not ended. Like, we are still dealing with the labor. Literally right now. We had to close last night because just labor shortage. In Denver. And still, yeah, still dealing with supply chain stuff. So it is ongoing. And I think the only, I mean, for us, at least it's just feels like we're we're honing and we're getting better and more nimble. And that just the thought of like, okay, this will pay off at some point if we can mm-hmm. hang in there. Cause we, I think we make really good food that people like and we're a good place to work. People like working with us. So if we can just hang on and just like at some point we're going to catch our break is sort of
0: what keeps us going. I hear your optimism and I appreciate it. Your chef threw in the towel. Yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) and, And that was, I think that was partially COVID, partially all of this stuff. And also just like there's a difference of running a sort of a fast casual restaurant that you want to grow and have many of them, and having a fine dining restaurant. and His background's fine dining, and that, and you're that's moving in world. a different direction. Yeah,
0: yeah. What do you do when you feel daunted? Like, where does that optimism come from, and can I borrow some of it?
1: <laughs> you can. Yeah, you can. And I don't. I mean, I don't know. I think to get a little, I guess a little personal. I've been sober for a long time. Hmm. I'm, you know, active in 12 step programs. I have a meditation practice. I'm also a a psychotherapist. So that's my, that's really my day job. I have a practice here in Boulder and I just, I do that stuff and it kind of, I don't know, I read, I think it was a Eckhart Tolle and he was asking someone. He's kind of like a
0: German philosopher. yeah, yeah, Yeah. Yeah.
1: And he wrote the power of now, like really awesome Stuff And he had asked someone like, you know, what, what do you think of reality? And the guy's like, Oh, I hate it. And it, and it, to me, it comes down to that. Like, this is it. This is what's happening. This is exactly what my life is. And I can be like, you know, I guess see all the negatives or just be like, it is what it is. And
0: I get that. It's a certain amount of surrender. It is also understanding that life isn't just the good stuff right this is life yeah, uh-huh. yeah.
1: And, and for me it's more not just avoiding the bad stuff but being okay with the bad stuff and then you can you can kind of handle anything you know it helps to be insured though scott <laughs> yeah that uh-huh. would have been yeah. that, I, that that absolutely would have been a
0: different story if we were not insured for sure well i appreciate your time thanks for meeting us here yeah. uh we'll look forward to talking to you maybe when you have a food hall open yeah absolutely. Scott Boyd co-owns the Rotary Restaurant, which burned in the Marshall Fire a year ago. Only two weeks after opening, he and his partners, who also have a Denver location, have spent the last year figuring out precisely how to move forward. When we come back, where the investigation stands into how the Marshall Fire started. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. I think there is
4: so much stress and anxiety permeating everybody's experience. It's the pandemic, the political climate, our recognition of the deep racial injustice within our country, our communities, our systems and structures, that as we work to address those things, we need to also find opportunities to provide a sense of stability and some things that you can count on. Our day-to-day work providing information that people can count on being grounded in facts is one of the most important things that we do. And the other thing is we recognize it's really important to provide moments of joy and moments of discovery. The impact of that is we hope that people are inspired and engaged. Support
0: CPR in 2023 and beyond at CPR.org. And thank you. One year after the Marshall Fire devastated Louisville and Superior, a key question remains unanswered. How did the fire start? CPR climate editor Joe Wirtz is tracking the investigation. And Joe, thanks for being with us. Hey, Ron. We know based on our own reporting that the cause of most wildfires in Colorado is actually never determined. Yeah. Unsatisfying as that may be. How confident are investigators in this case?
4: Well... It is hard to get a sense of how authorities feel about the investigation because they won't talk to us. The Boulder County Sheriff's Office is leading the investigation, and we've requested multiple interviews since the Marshall fire a year ago, but officials there have declined every one of those. The Sheriff's Office did release a new statement just the other day saying basically they're in the final stages of this investigation, and they could release their findings as soon as the early part of next year.
0: In addition to the Boulder County Sheriff's Office, the FBI, Mm -hmm. the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives are also working on this case. What are they factoring in?
4: So we do know a few more details about the investigation. We know that authorities have received more than 200 tips. They've collected 186 items of evidence. That evidence includes physical items, digital evidence, things like drone footage. We know they've received and, you know, sifted through hundreds of photos and videos. Each of these items has been reviewed multiple times.
0: Yeah. When you think about how documented this was just from a social media standpoint of those who experienced it, I mean, we're talking just reams and reams of footage. Um, Is this a typical investigation for a massive wildfire?
4: In a lot of ways, it is. Wildfires, are complicated to solve. We know from CPR's own investigation earlier this year that most wildfires in Colorado, you know, the cause is never determined. If if you take a broader look, you look across the US, we know that humans cause, you know, 9 out of 10 wildfires. And we know, you know, through our investigation that Colorado ranks last among western states for solving those human-caused wildfires. So, in more than half of these human-caused wildfires here in Colorado, The authorities have failed to pinpoint either a person or a device, you know, equipment or, Mm -hmm. you know, some human linked cause for those fires. And Colorado is the only state in the U.S. without a state fire marshal. That means, you know, there's less centralized control at the state level for fire investigations, for policy training, data collection into these big investigations.
0: It is fascinating to me that the vast majority of wildfires are human caused because I think of lightning as so prominent here but so is, you know, human interaction in the WUI, the wildland urban interface. What possible causes are investigators considering at this point?
4: Well, the sheriff's office says they're looking at a, nearly a dozen possible sources for the fire. Frankly, you know, the list they gave us is pretty much basically every possible cause for this fire. Okay. These things range from, like you said, lightning, fireworks, campfires, all the way to underground coal mine fires, burning debris, sparks from electrical equipment, the list they gave us, you know, pretty much any possible cause is still part of the investigation.
0: The Marshall Fire proved to be the most destructive in the state's history. That's right. Destroying more than a thousand homes. Two people died. Remind us of what led up to the fire, maybe the conditions too. Yeah, that's right.
4: So, you know, a a year ago, this thing sparked somewhere on the outskirts of Boulder County. The wind that day was just hurricane-force winds. We're talking 100-mile-per-hour gusts. You know, that pushed this fire from the grasslands in Boulder County, which were dry, parched by droughts. You know, no precipitation or snow that time of the year, last year. And it pushed those flames into suburban neighborhoods. And it transformed this grass fire into a suburban inferno. At that point, this fire is moving house to house. It's moving down fences and catching one house, triggers another house, and it's just moving through these neighborhoods very quickly. When first responders get on the scene, it's pretty quickly determined that this is essentially out of control and becomes just an effort to get people and, and animals out of the way. You know, the Boulder Sheriff's Office did release a bunch of new body cam footage from first responders that day. You know, look at through this stuff. It's 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 scary. It's it's harrowing stuff. Uh, it Shows them going door to door, getting people out, helping people evacuate, rushing in, helping residents escape flames, driving through smoke. You know, we see footage of police and other fire crews helping folks get horses out, out of pens and get them onto trailers so they can get them out of there uh, in time. Here's what some of those scenes sound like.
2: Command 571, I got visible flames moving east behind 5871 Marshal, <laughs> Evacuate east! Go east! Go east, yeah, towards Denver! Okay. Go towards Denver! Evacuate now! Move now! Leave your stuff! Go! Yeah. The fire's at the back! Go! Everybody head east. Get out of the store
0: now. Now, Joe Wirtz, the first caller to report the Marshall fire and the first firefighter to respond, told dispatchers a power line was hanging across a road. What became of that early information?
4: Yeah, that's right. Uh, Boulder County Sheriff Joe Pelley initially suggested that power lines were the likely cause of the Marshall fire, but he quickly walked that back and became less certain as other possible causes emerged. Excel Energy, which provides power in that area of the state, has denied that any of its equipment had had any role in sparking the fire. Excel's possible role is at the center of a class action lawsuit that is working its way through the courts. I should note that in November, a Colorado judge rejected Excel's motion to dismiss that case that blames it for causing
0: or contributing to the fire. So there are folks out there who think they have enough evidence at least to file suit against the utility.
4: Yeah, that's right.
0: You mentioned uh, some of the other possible sources for the fire. Any more specifics?
4: You know, investigators at one point were definitely focusing on a property owned by a fringe Christian sect with a building in headquarters there uh, on the outskirts of Boulder. You know, witnesses reported open burning at near and around that property. We know firefighters had been out at that scene uh, responding to open burning in the days and weeks before the fire. But we have not heard much about that. They had that area cordoned off. We know they executed a search warrant. Mm. Those records are, are are not available for us to look at right now. But we know there was a lot of activity. FBI was out there. And uh, since then, we haven't heard any updates from them. And, and it, it's worth noting that we've tried to talk to the folks with that religious sect to no avail.
0: We know climate change was a factor a year ago in making things worse. Uh, and in fact, there was a small wildland fire Uh, Just recently, also in Boulder County, kind of a frightening case of deja vu. Joe, I know you were listening to that scanner traffic as we waited to see how serious it would get. What can you tell us about these now year-round conditions, right? The notion of a discrete fire season is kind of gone.
4: Yeah, that's right. Look, you know, climate change is a big contributing factor here. Climate change is driving the mega drought that Colorado's currently in, a 20-plus year mega drought. That long-term dryness and changing precipitation, snowfall patterns, they're making open space and wilderness uh, more dangerous. People in Colorado are living closer and closer to these dangerous areas. Population is getting bigger. We're moving closer up to these, uh, these spots. And data show that
0: half of all Coloradans live in this wildfire danger zone. Let that soak in. Half of Colorado is susceptible to wildfire. So if you think this is just someone who lives in the mountains with forest around them, that's not half of Colorado.
4: This is not a forested mountain area problem. This is an everywhere problem. And Colorado's fire season is much longer than it used to be. The data definitely make that clear. It is more than 70 days longer Mm. than it was in the 1970s. This is not a summer thing.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for the insight, for the update. Anytime. Joe Wirtz leads CPR's climate and environment team. He's keeping tabs on the investigation into what caused the Marshall Fire in Boulder County a year ago. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with how vulnerable your home or business is to the mounting threats of climate change, from heat to wildfire. We'll try out a tool that can help you measure your susceptibility. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News and KRCC.
4: Fixing an entire education system isn't simple.
1: It's like, oh, it's not equity, it's CRT. And it's like, do you even know what is CRT? They can't tell you a thing, but they can tell you that it's racist.
4: I'm Joe Erickson, and Systemic from Colorado Public Radio is back for Season 2, asking hard questions about the American education system. Systemic returns January 10th on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
0: The Marshall Fire made a lot of us think about how vulnerable our own homes and businesses are. Half of Coloradans live in places prone to wildfire, according to the state. But does it actually change our decisions about where to live and work? Ed Kearns' nonprofit calculates a property's climate susceptibility to floods, fire, extreme heat. The National Service is called Risk Factor. And these scores are listed as well On Redfin and Realtor, in addition to Risk Factor's own website. Ed, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. You're in charge of the data science behind these risk calculations. I'll note that you used to work at NOAA, that's the the Federal Atmospheric Agency, but you saw an even greater opportunity to help people. Help people what exactly?
2: To make decisions about how they're going to be responding to climate change and to make those decisions based upon information and data that they can trust.
0: And is it that that data, do you think, is just not widely available, perhaps from the federal government, for instance?
2: Luckily, in the federal government, there's been a big push over the last couple of years on open data, making these data available to the public and to private companies and academics and others that can use this information. However, the data are still difficult to use. Uh, Mm -hmm. They require a high level of, of expertise to understand them and to translate them into usable form is something that we're doing at First Street.
0: First Street is the foundation that created Risk Factor. And to give people a sense of how this works, I typed in a friend's address, Ed, who lives on the outskirts of Aurora, and it generated the following. This property has risk from two of three environmental factors, minimal flood, moderate fire, four out of 10, and moderate heat, three out of 10. To ask plainly, I guess, is there a score so high that someone should consider moving? I mean, is that what you want people to do with this?
2: Uh, we want people to to dig in deeper to understand what that score means. So, it, if it's a ten out of ten, it may be very alarming, but they should find out more, dig into the details, and understand why that property is scored so high. Mm. It may mean that uh, that's an unacceptable level of risk that you're living with. It may mean that you can do things to your property or your house to reduce that risk. If it's for flood, for example, you may be able to raise your house up on stilts. If it's fire, you may be able to cut defensible space around your home or make other modifications to your home so it can survive the kind of exposure that a 10 out of 10 is conveyed.
0: In other words, is this as... As specific as knowing that there are, like, too many trees too close to a particular property? Is that, is that how dialed in you get?
2: We do get dialed in very, very specifically. So we try to make this information personal. So it helps you make the decisions about, hey, do I have to do something to protect my investment, protect my family, protect my home, protect my business?
0: And if I do those things, would my score come down?
2: The exposure score will still stay high unless some of those things that are being done, and then wildfire is usually done at the community level of doing prescribed burns or thinning of forests or cutting fire breaks, things that are going to make it more difficult for fire to get to your home in the first place. But the, the score is about the exposure to the hazard.
0: Uh, to be abundantly clear, mitigation, the notion of thinning, uh, what kind of vegetation is around your structure, you know, that that makes a real difference. But I also hear you saying that you could take this information and you could lobby for some more community-level change. So in that way, you're kind of empowering people in a democracy, maybe to lobby their local leaders, for instance. Let's talk more. I'm, I'm curious about the heat rating. So this home in Aurora had a moderate uh, score, three out of 10. What would someone do in terms of their susceptibility to extreme heat? That feels a little less within my power to change.
2: In some cases, it may be including uh, cooling in your home, air conditioning. You know, there's a lot of people that live in, in the mountains or live like in the Pacific Northwest that don't have air conditioning. And as these extreme heat waves and heat domes become more prevalent uh, in the future under climate change, uh, taking those kind of measures that you can get through uh, an extreme heat event without damaging your health is is something that you, yeah, you could do at a, at a personal level.
0: Yeah, I think there are a lot of people in Colorado, who have not historically had air conditioning, who are either thinking about it or perhaps adding it. Although that's a whole different conversation about what it means to be drawing power for air conditioning in the face of climate change. Uh, Okay, so, you know, in an ideal world, this would lead to some sort of behavior change. Do you have evidence that it has done so?
2: Well, Realtor and Redfin, as you mentioned, are our partners in distributing this information. And Redfin just recently published a study that did show that their customers to the redfin.com platform do start to make choices towards less risky homes with the more exposure that they have to the risk information. So we're very excited by these early results. And it shows that, you know, given this kind of information about climate risk and fire and flood and heat risk, that Americans are making decisions to accommodate that.
0: You know, the Marshall Fire a year ago surprised people, I think, because wildfires are so often associated with forests rather than the plains. Um, That is erroneous even before the Marshall Fire, but it became, I think, very clear a year ago. I wonder if there are other surprises in general.
2: What surprised me overall as part of the project was the kind of personal connection that happens even with a you know career scientist such as myself and, and my peers around the country, uh, as I talk with them, they all have a very similar experience when a, uh, when you go and type in your address, all of a sudden you've made a connection between you know these obscure climate models, and it makes it very very personal for every American when you see how it's changing that risk at your home, and it kind of you know sparks the thought of okay now what can I do about it.
0: There's been some pushback, though, to your data from people who say the specific scores should really be seen as estimates. Are there any caveats that you'd give individual property owners?
2: Well, these, these are all estimates. These are all projections, but they're informed projections. So we're leaning on the IPCC's climate model data that the entire community has been using with these projections about how society is gonna be impacting climate going forward into the future. Hmm. We take that information, that highly technical information, we use it to scale the inputs to our models that we use then to drive uh, a flood model or fire model at a very high resolution so we can get down to property by property estimations of what that risk is. It takes a lot of computation to do so. It, It is a very difficult process, but it allows us to be very specific as opposed to a lot of statistical approaches that will say, oh, well, you're in the same county, so maybe you have the same risk. That's not necessarily true. Hmm. And we want to be able to drill down so people can see that, yes, there is a house-to-house distinction, there's a block-by-block distinction, a town-by-town distinction. And it does take users uh, a while to wrap their head around what their current risk is before they can even start to think about how this is going to be changing in the next 30 years. And that's fair.
0: I mean, that's fascinating because I think of Jefferson County, for instance, and that is a geographically, geologically very diverse county. And you've got plains and you've got forests and you've got cities and you've got rural areas. So, yes, even within one county, there's going to be a huge amount of difference. You talk about the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Do you hope that this leads to fewer people living in what's called the wui the wildland urban interface in other words where the city meets the forest these are often very pretty places close to jobs with views but also lots of tinder
2: i think people can make their own decisions about this my fear is that people go live in the wui and don't understand what their level of risk is i want them to know that level and make an informed decision because you know people will always want to live in these beautiful places people will want to live on the beach these are great places but if you do so, do so uh, as an informed consumer, knowing that you are assuming a lot of risk when you do these
0: types of things. In this score, you have baked in what the IPCC projects into the coming decades. When you look at that data, how bleak is it? And how, or, or how optimistic is it?
2: Well, I'm very optimistic because this information and these projections are available and that the future is knowable we as humans and as communities, we can respond to that. There's many actions that we can take.
0: And when you look at that data, though, as the data scientist, what picture does it paint into the next 30 years?
2: It it, it paints a a rapidly changing environment. To me, it's going to be an expensive adaptation for that future. For the next 30 years, there's a lot of things that we have to do in order to adapt for that, that future that's coming at us. And we also have to make other decisions so that beyond 30 years, we are preparing to do the right thing so that it doesn't get much worse after that.
0: Mm. Expense is such a fascinating question, right? Because there could be immediate, expensive outlays to protect one's property, uh, but the expenses of not doing it have to be considered as well.
2: Yeah. And there's been so many studies that show that you know responding to an uh, environmental disaster is way more expensive after the fact than it is preparing for it. Working with governments make this information uh, well understood, well known, both by people and the regulators and the insurance companies, I think as a community, we can move to a better state. Sure.
0: Have you used this data to find the least risky place to live, maybe in the conterminous United States?
2: I, I already made that distinction about 15 years ago when my wife and I moved from Miami, Florida to Asheville, North Carolina. That was largely driven by flood and hurricane risk at the time. It was a decision we made. We wanted to go to some place that was less risky for us and our family. Some people are willing to live with a higher degree of risk, but the information is there now. So if you want to have that conversation, if you want to find the place that uh, you feel most comfortable with the level of risk, the information is there for you to do exactly that.
0: Oh, I've heard lovely things about Asheville. I haven't been myself, but uh, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Ryan. Ed Kearns is chief data officer at First Street Foundation, which produces Risk Factor. The tool calculates flood, extreme heat, and wildfire risk for properties across the country. Still to come, should there be federally backed wildfire insurance, kind of like there is for floods? It's an idea Boulder County's representative in Congress wants to discuss. Joe Goose, whose district has been walloped by natural disaster over and over again, will join us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start?
0: What is the state's
4: most iconic food?
1: Why does Peña Boulevard
0: have a bike lane?
4: And does anyone use it?
0: These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. What does it mean to get back to normal when climate change means facing a new normal? For Jessica Carson of Louisville, it meant rebuilding at an impressive speed after the Marshall fire.
1: So, this is the master bedroom, and you can see the beautiful windows they put in. You get the mountains. So, get to wake up and see that. And then have a nice big bathroom, nice big shower, and a walk in closet, which I did not have before.
0: Carson is the first homeowner to rebuild and move back in after the fire. Hers was one of more than a thousand homes destroyed. So what's the bigger picture when it comes to recovery and preventing the next disaster? Let's hear now from Boulder Congressman Joe Neguse, a Democrat. Congressman, welcome back. Thank you for having me, Ryan. We're here ostensibly to talk about the Marshall Fire. But just the other day, there was a close call in your district with the Sunshine Fire. We expect the conditions... That lead to wildfire to intensify in the face of climate change, hot, dry conditions. As a decision maker, how do you deal with the sense of inevitability that I know I struggle with, and that others do too? Yeah, it's a conundrum, uh,
3: you know, Ryan. I think you articulated the challenge before us really well. The reality is that as a result of climate change, record-breaking, unprecedented drought uh, that we've experienced in Colorado over the course of the last several years, uh, which is a historic abnormality. Uh, We are likely to see these fires become more pervasive and more intense over the coming years, and they are likely to, uh, uh, you know, metastasize further and further outside the WUI, the wildland-urban interface, as it's commonly referred to, and threatening more suburban and urban communities across Colorado. Of course, as you know, uh, my district has been an epicenter for these fires over the course of the last several years, the most salient example being the Marshall Fire, the most destructive fire in the history of our state nearly one year ago. But as I uh, communicate with my colleagues uh, on the work that we're doing to try to make Colorado more resilient, I've tried to implore anyone who will listen that these fires are likely to be a threat, not just to the communities I represent, but to communities up and down the Front Range, from Arvada to Carroll, from Highlands Ranch to Pueblo. And it is important for us to take it seriously and to make the necessary investments to do what we can on the prevention side and and on the mitigation side, understanding, as you said,
0: Ryan, that there is a certain inevitability. Well, it occurs to me that you'll be entering the minority in the House. Do you feel like that power change is going to affect your ability to get climate stuff done?
3: Well, it's certainly going to change the priorities uh, of the Congress writ at large. And unfortunately, I think that climate action and action to to save our planet and the type of investments that we made, for example, in the Inflation Reduction Act just a few months ago are unlikely to be on the agenda for the 118th Congress in light of the Republicans taking the majority temporarily here. However, I will say uh, we've worked really hard to try to find areas of consensus as it relates to wildfire mitigation, prevention, resiliency. In particular, I co-chair bipartisan wildfire caucus with John Curtis, a Republican from Utah who represents Park City, a district somewhat similar to my own. Mm. We worked really closely to try to find ways to generate consensus within the Congress on pushing the Forest Service, for example, to take more meaningful steps on the mitigation side. And we have one rule for our caucus, Ryan, uh, which is that you can only join the caucus if you join with a member of the opposing political party. Unfortunately, that is Kept it rather small, but also has meant that the individuals who are part of this caucus, the 10 members, are very focused on really trying to find uh, results and deliver results. So in any event, there will be opportunities, I certainly hope, for us to continue to make progress on those issues, notwithstanding the, the changing political winds
0: here in Washington. When it comes to the Marshall Fire, the government has earmarked $720 million for landscape restoration, a little over $5 million for resiliency, Uh, I think most people on the ground in and around Louisville and Superior would like to know, what does any of that money mean for me and my safety? Sure. Well, the resiliency dollars, uh, in
3: large part, will go towards fuel management projects, right? So this is essentially altering and uh, improving the landscapes around these particular areas, these subdivisions, uh, these neighborhoods, so that to the extent that a, a fire ends up occurring, it can be mitigated against. It doesn't develop as quickly and can be ultimately suppressed uh, more easily by our our brave wildland firefighters, just by way of example. Um, The fuel management projects are very different, again, in a suburban area uh, when you're talking mostly about grasslands, juxtaposed against the fuel management projects that we do in other parts of my district. Uh, 52% of Colorado's second congressional district is federal public land. You can imagine places like White River National Forest and Arapaho Roosevelt, where large-scale fuel management projects are very important. Very different uh, when you think about again these more suburban open space landscapes.
0: Yeah. So, what does that look like? Is that you know, giant lawnmowers? mowers? Well, it's,
3: it, that, that ultimately those are decisions uh, you know made by the local jurisdictions that will receive these grant dollars. So that that's it's subject to the discretion. For example, in this case of the Boulder County Open Space Department and uh, the various city and local officials understanding that, of course, as you know, incredible and pristine open space is a big part of uh, why uh, we love Colorado, right? Why why folks choose to live in Colorado and choose to stay. So there's a balancing act mm-hmm. there and Attention. Um, that, that's Attention. that's part of the process.
0: And so there is also an individual homeowner responsibility here as well. Is any of the federal money in service of individual support, or is it all at the broader community level?
3: No, there is. There's uh, a significant portion of the funds that go towards programs like Firewise, which are local jurisdiction-based programs that go directly to homeowners to make necessary improvements to their own properties. Mm. Now, of course, again, it's a paradigm shift, right? Because most of those programs have, in the past, largely gone towards residents who are firmly within the WUI, right? These are individuals who might live in a property that is adjacent to forest service land, right? You can think of folks, for example, who live in places like Evergreen. Of course, there are steps that residents can also take in more suburban and urban areas, but those are different.
0: Yeah, it's a real paradigm shift. I feel that. Um, We heard earlier from Jessica Carson of Louisville, who is the first homeowner to rebuild and move back into her home after the Marshall fire. While there have been 250 rebuilding permits issued, uh, there have only been two certificates of occupancy granted thus far to Carson and then a Target store in Superior. Um, Does that pace seem slow to you? I think what we learned uh, from... uh, Natural disasters of the
3: past, Ryan, particularly in the jurisdictions that I represent in Boulder County and Larimer County, is that the recovery process is always a very long one. Uh, the historic 2013 floods yes. are probably the most salient example. Where when I was first elected to Congress in 2018, we, uh, you know, inherited much of the recovery work from my predecessor, uh, now Governor Polis, in still continuing to assist communities within Boulder County and Larimer County to recover from that historic. 100-year flood. This wildfire, the Marshall Fire, um, is no different. And it is the reality that this is going to take quite a long time. I've been fortunate to visit it with a number of residents who are in the process of rebuilding their homes. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, some are, are farther along. We are always available to assist residents to do what we can to ensure that they are getting a responsive government, whether it's at the local or, or state or federal level, but it will take time. And I know that it's frustrating to many in our community, many in Louisville, many in Superior, many in unincorporated areas of Boulder County.
0: Congressman Nagoose, could you estimate for us the number of or the percentage, perhaps, of emails, of letters, of calls that you get now related to people's rebuilding after the Marshall fire and perhaps their frustrations therewith?
3: Well, I I would broaden it even further, uh, Ryan. It's tough to put a particular number on it. But we, in the last two years, the state's largest wildfire, the Cameron Peak Fire in Larimer County, the state's second largest wildfire, the East Troublesome Fire in Grand County, and the state's most destructive fire, Marshall Fire, all happened within my congressional district. So it is safe to say that the bulk of our portfolio from a constituent response perspective pertains to wildfire response, to helping residents who are rebuilding, not just folks in Superior rebuilding as a result of the Marshall Fire, but folks in Granby rebuilding to this day as a result of the East Troublesome Fire back in 2020. But I believe that it will, as I said, these wildfires uh, and grass fires are going to be coming to a community near you. Um, And so it's important for us to be
0: ready. The worst trailer I've ever heard, Joe. Joe. <laughs> yeah, yeah Agreed on that front. <laughs> um, so, uh, can you share with us a win? In other words, uh, tell us about, if you could, a constituent, and you don't have to name names, but a constituent that you were able to do something for.
3: Oh, sure. I mean, look, it, it runs the gamut between you know things that some folks might uh, find diminutive, right? You, you, securing the waiver of fees for folks to be able to replace their passports that were destroyed in the Marshall Fire, to uh, the much more large scale, the securing of uh, FEMA approval for the private property debris removal process, which included this very rare approval of cost coverage for removing damaged home foundations. Again, very technical, Mm -hmm. doesn't sound like a big deal, but makes a huge difference.
0: Can you share a frustration? Can you share something you wish were different about recovery?
3: Yeah, a couple of things. I'd say, first and foremost, it is clear that the underinsurance challenge that is very acute in Colorado is a matter of national concern. We have learned through the the Marshall Fire um, that many in our community are are underinsured. The reality is, as these fires become more and more pervasive, it's going to become more difficult to procure sufficient insurance to be able to protect, uh, you know, one's home, one's belongings. Hmm. And that is a problem that is systemic. You see that in California, you see it in other states as well. One of my frustrations has been the lack of any kind of political will of my colleagues in Washington to do something about it. We we have been trying to ring this alarm. As you know, property casualty insurance is, is largely a matter of of state jurisdiction. It's regulated at the state level through a national consortium, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. Uh, we have a very effective insurance commissioner in Colorado who, I think, again, has leaned in and leaned in very early, but a long winded way of saying clearly this is an issue that should be on the minds of policymakers in Washington. It's been an uphill battle convincing folks to take it as seriously as I think we need to take it and to potentially explore some solutions that, that some folks might not be necessarily interested in, but that nonetheless warrant discussion thinking along the lines of for example the national flood insurance program right Mm -hmm, that we've mm -hmm. developed in any event that would be one challenge there are many others
0: the notion of of there being flood insurance that is federally backed and might you do something like that for wildfire precisely Mm -hmm. okay before we go i find that i have to uh to live a life in the face of climate change I both have to think about climate change and then there's a part of me that knows there are behaviors I engage in where I kind of have to, you know, put my fingers in my ears and go la 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 la. Be it the car I drive which is a combustion engine, you do a fair bit of flying as a member of Congress. I wonder if you'd uh, spill your guts a bit and share with us an example of something where modern life gets in the way of the you know the the ideal, the values around fighting climate change.
3: Well, you've listed a couple of salient examples. <laughs> Look, I think it's a balance. I mean, clearly, collectively, I think most Coloradans recognize the need for a transition to a renewable energy future. The path to getting there is not necessarily an easy one, and it requires, uh, I think, a lot of thought. And it's going to also require actions at every level of government, and of course. Actions on the part of individuals, as well, but it's a transition. It's it's not meant to convey uh, that that's happening overnight. And, and clearly, that's a, a balance and a nuanced conversation that I suspect happens, you know, in many businesses and and uh, nonprofits uh, and around the kitchen table, right? You know, for families and, of course, uh, for policymakers as well. So it's an ongoing project of of trying to find ways to expedite the transition to a renewable energy future and doing it in a way that's inclusive and that brings everyone along, but it's not without its challenges.
0: I hear you say, it's a process, Ryan. Take a breath.
3: That, uh, what, a, what, a, <laughs> what a much more concise way of saying exactly what I had intended to convey.
0: <laughs> uh, Congressman, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you. Representative Joe Neguse won re-election to the U.S. House in November. The Democrat represents Colorado's second district, a portion of which burned in the Marshall Fire a year ago. And that is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Carl Bielek, Nancy Lofholm, Shane Ramsey, Rachel Estabrook, Pedro Lumbraño, and Anthony Cotton. You're with CPR News and KRCC.